Hi, everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by clicking subscribe and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. I hope everyone has been keeping really well, and I hope that you all had a very special Christmas day, however you chose to spend that. Now, not only is this the final episode of the year, I can't believe it, but it's the final episode of season one of Behind the Smile. So I thought that it would be fitting to pull together some of my favorite magic moments from this year. Now, each of these magic moments encapsulates what this podcast is all about, sharing people's wisdom and experience through the lens of honesty and vulnerability. So to kick things off, we have my dad, Rod, and he shares his experience around the powerlessness of addiction, the mental obsession, and how he's learned to practice the pause. When then did alcohol and or other substances enter your life? Oh, at a pretty young age, I think I had my first drink at about 13, mm-hmm. and, um, and not long after I discovered um, some marijuana in my brother's bedroom in a, in a matchbox and... Of course, I nicked it and uh, <laughs> we experimented with that. And, you know, back then it was sort of go to the local dance um, on a Saturday night, I think it was, and we'd sort of hang around the pub and find someone who looked uh, friendly enough to grab us a few bottles of whatever it was. And, 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 and But in the early days back then, in our teenage years, it was, you know, relatively manageable because um, I suppose it was just a psyche thing that Saturday night was go to the dance and have a few drinks and yada, yada. It wasn't mindful about you can do it on Sunday afternoon or probably didn't want to. But mm. I do remember coming home from work one day. I was always been a re- you know, big drinker. And in my mid-late 20s, I came home from work one day and it was a Monday and I opened the fridge and there was a bottle of wine and I thought, oh, my God, how, how good's that? I can have a drink. It's actually Monday, but that's fine. Because my drinking had always been basically Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then as I got into business back in the 80s, uh, business was all about going to lunch. Mm. So it was very justifiable. But I drank differently to a lot of the other people that I would have lunch with. Mm. And, and they'd go back to the office and I'd go to the casino or, or I'd go somewhere else. You know? mm. So mm. it was always an issue. Once I started, I, I, I couldn't stop. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually did give up for, was it around 12 months yeah. when shortly after I was born? Yes, that's right. I, um, I think I got sick and tired of, of, of uh, being unreliable and sick and tired of the, the look on your mother's face when I'd 
sort of crawled through the door some ungodly hour. And so I made a commitment and I gave up uh, for a year, which was in 1985 or six. Mm. Yeah, not, not around that mm, time, mm. yeah. And um, I remember it quite well. I lasted a year and um, I went to Northern Territory on a business trip and I sat down for dinner and someone poured me a glass of wine and I immediately thought, oh, yeah, okay. Because um, I had no knowledge about the disease of alcoholism. I had no knowledge about the the, cra- the phenomenon of craving, the the um, the elements that, that the obsession that the mind gets into. You know, I often mention uh, in sharing and whatnot that I drive home from the city from my office. Um, you know, for the best part of ten or fifteen years. And I was always obsessing about how much booze was in the fridge and did I need to stop and get some more. And I never once obsessed about how much milk was in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Not once. So true, isn't it? Gosh, <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. The mental obsession. Totally. And, if, and let me just say, if you have not had a mental obsession, you, I can understand that you would find listening to this very difficult. Mm. Because... It's something that really only the addicts and the alcoholics can identify with mm-hmm. powerfully, like we identify with it very powerfully. Whereas someone who's never had an obsession, and I understand, they might say, oh, you've just got a weak character. Mm. or Weak-willed. You're weak-willed. But there are, the interesting thing about that is that many alcoholics have had a lot of success in various streams and walks of life. So it's not about a lack of character or resolve or perseverance. In fact, you know, to stay in recovery requires a degree of resolve and perseverance. So, yeah, it's a complex topic. It's really complex. And uh, I, I often just ask people to do some research for 10 minutes before you form a view. Mm. So then... Between, let's say, 1986-87 to 2010, you drank. Oh, yeah. And what did that look like? I drank for Australia. (laughs) Oh, it was – and again, this is where alcoholism and addiction is quite complicated because there were occasions where I thought I was managing my drinking. But upon reflection, I wasn't really managing my drinking. I was managing my ego because – I couldn't go to lunch with a client and get too messy. I'd have to wait until later. I couldn't go to the footy functions where I had to make a speech and be messy. So I'd wait until later. And it was only in early recovery that people explained to me that what was managing your drinking? Was I managing my drinking or was the sense of not wanting to embarrass yourself or some other element like that actually the... The, the thing behind how you drank. I still remember you taking me, we were sitting down having coffee one day um, when I was still in active addiction and you, you did what you love to do and you got out a serviette and a pen yeah. and you drew out that cycle of, cycle addiction, of addiction and, yeah. and re- tried to, you know, sort of explain this concept to me that yeah. it was never me managing my drinking. For me, it was always my responsibilities, my job, yes. you know, what I had to show up for. And if that was taken off the table, then all bets were off. And yes. nine times out of 10, I'd be, you know, I'd be writing myself off. Yes. Yes, you know. that's right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was I, – I'd either leave – most occasions I'd leave my car in the city and get a cab home. I mean, uh, but as soon as I got home, it was game on. Mm. So 
it's um, it's it's di- a difficult thing for people to understand how we behave. I heard a story in a meeting some years ago where a young lady, she was a nurse, and and she was um, crushing up a powdery, I don't know what it was, but something to inject, mm. and she was crying into the spoon. She was using against her will. Mm. Such is that obsession and that craving that we get. And, you know, again, only an alcoholic or an addict would really understand that, that, that we actually do these things against our will. Yeah, the powerlessness. The powerlessness. And, uh, oh, wow, it's, uh, it's quite a bit to learn and understand. But once you do um, and you learn through the experience, your own experience and that of others that you meet along the way, along the recovery journey, that it all falls into place and makes sense. Mm. That, you know, I needed to hand over my will and to the care of a higher power, some other power, be it a whale, be it a golf ball, it doesn't matter, mm. just not me. Mm. And uh, and so um, that's been another really interesting element of my recovery is to explore the higher power. Mm. What is that? You know, I don't think it's the fella that was going to burn me in hell. No, it's not a punishing God. That's <laughs> no, what that's I've right. come to realise. Yeah. So what is it then for you? <sighs> Look, I, I, I've come to the view that the universe is massive beyond our compre- comprehension. It is just ridiculously massive. I mean, somebody said to me once that um, to, to define the size of the universe. Think about a sparrow flying across the globe to sharpen his or her beak on Mount Everest. How long would it take to to bring Mount, Mount Everest by the single bird sharpening his or her beak? Mm. And it's a thousand times bigger than that. It's mm. just there's something, you know, in recovery I've come to realise about the, the, the quantum of the universe. And so I, I now just look at this extraordinary thing called the universe and try and you know try and sort of tap into some of the energy that that's available and um but it, it's it's not a single thing it's not it's not a god i mean there's thousands of gods for god's sake across you know the history of of mankind or or humanity thousands so it can be any one of those sure um but i i think it's something extraordinarily bigger that i just choose to call the universe Our next magic moment is from Mon. She talks to us about what she found to be the most challenging parts of her sobriety and shares with us a little tip that she has for those particularly challenging times. What do you think has been the hardest part about getting sober? Uh, That's a really good question. I think it's not the not drinking fine it's sitting in the feelings it's sitting in those Mm. that shit that anxiety that I would get every night at about five o'clock in the afternoon um dealing with that and making sense of that and facing it Mm -hmm. um which I don't really have that feeling anymore (laughs) I was going to ask that so how do you deal with that when it comes up now if you don't take a drink yeah, so I don't have it so much anymore. 
I still do for sure. It's a tricky time when you're, you're a mother as well. Mm-hmm. Um, five o'clock till you know bedtime is it's a lot of work. Witching hour. <laughs> it is, and it's and it's like the end of the day, and all you want to do is take time for yourself. So a glass of wine or ten was the perfect way to check out of that shit situation. Mm. And um, so now I am in it. And I think um, The Miracle of Mindfulness, the book, I've forgotten the name of the author, um, he put it really well where he was talking to a father who was complaining about not having his own time. And he pointed out to this man, and I might be telling the story incorrectly, but essentially he pointed out to this man that um, it was his time, that all his time on this earth is actually his time. And to me that made a lot of sense. I'm like, oh, hang on, no, this is my time too and this is my opportunity to learn something and grow. And so now... Um, I've had those times are times where I do try and engage with my children or I'll say to Lash, I need to check out. And Mm. I haven't perfected it yet. I haven't got that yet. Also, I've hidden in work a lot because my work allowed me to work from 2.30 to 10.30 at night. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Problem solved. (laughs) I had a good, yeah, a good reprieve from it as well. But But I think you make a good point. You know, if there are, if if somebody's new in sobriety and they know that there are these periods of time, whether Mm. that be throughout the day or throughout the week where they're going to be triggered or it's a more challenging time, you know, communicate to a loved one. Let them know that this is Mm. going to be a time of day that you need extra support or if you can remove yourself for a period of time until you build up the resilience and the strength to be able to go back into that space without being triggered or perhaps with having different tools to lean on yeah absolutely definitely going for a walk um those sorts of things have always helped me and substituting so I still drink a lot of diet tonic and lemon I can. <laughs> so sure. I've still got that action. I still feel like I'm sort of soothing myself. And mm. it's amazing how even though that's not alcohol, I feel quite okay with that glass and that action. What a great idea though. Mm. I hadn't even thought of that. I know for me I'll drink uh, alcohol-free substitutes when I'm out at parties or barbecues or whatnot, mm. weddings. But to actually do it if there was a time mm. in your life when you were at home, for instance, mm. that you would normally go for that glass of wine to mm-hmm. substitute it at that time as well. Mm-hmm. It's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It works. Perfect. <laughs> so we've spoken about what the hardest part about getting sober is. What has changed the most for you since getting sober? Yep. Um, I have a much better sense of self uh, and don't get me wrong, I still have a lot of self-doubt and self-esteem issues that I need to deal with. Um, but I feel confident in myself now. I feel a sense of clarity that I didn't have before. I feel like I'm presenting a person to my children that I want as their role model. I mean, Dulcie, my oldest, my 13-year-old, 
she still has um, very vivid memories of me being drunk Mm. and she's so proud and I'm so glad that we're setting that example because as a child as well, like my mother didn't drink but my father did. Like Mm. that was his way. He'd get home, he'd be viciously angry and he'd just go and drink beer Um, and that was his way of of dealing it like most people with a drinking problem. Um, so yeah, just being present as a as a better mother, as a better work colleague, and also being able to achieve at work, um, not being hungover, feeling healthy, uh, and just stepping out of my comfort zone for sure. Like um, I started doing open water swimming last year in the bay. Um, things that I just wouldn't have done before opening up my door to people that I wouldn't have previously Mm. like I think it shattered a lot of barriers that I'd created and a lot of stories that I told myself of what I thought was an ideal person or way of being that kind of dissolved did you have that experience I did yeah it's really interesting I found that in sobriety I like people a lot more yes um I think that there's two things related to that. There's an increase in tolerance and a decrease yes. in judgment. Yes, absolutely. I find in nursing there's a lot of women, um, obviously, of all different ages that I wouldn't have necessarily um, reached out to for conversation or friendship or advice previous to Um, my sobriety Um, and now I have amazing connections with women from all different age groups who are teaching me about what hardship is and how hard it is to be a mother when you're a single mother or you know it's difficult to feed like um, all these stories that I was never open to and now I am like how did that happen it's sort of magical Mm, this shift in mindset that just opens up this whole new world from not drinking very interesting (laughs) it's amazing isn't it and then I think you know when you speak about finding that sense of self I know for me I've had a similar experience and another thing that's happened to me is that when you no longer wake up every day with that guilt shame and remorse Mm you're able to build that self-esteem, yes. rebuild that self-esteem, which yes. you had spoken about losing. Absolutely. That's totally it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. incredible. You never think putting down the drink that there's going to be so much on offer on the other side. Absolutely. Next up, we have Gabs. Gabs talks about his rock bottom and how important that was for him to create a foundation for his future. He also shares a really great explanation as to what it means to have alcoholic thinking. At the time that photo was taken, how long before you got sober was that? Uh, well, um, so that photograph was actually taken almost at the end of my career um, as a builder developer. So again, my whole story sort of all rolls into one. I, 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 I had quite a lot of success as a young age and um, I was able to get a lot of things um, and some very nice things, mind you. Um, what sort of things were well, they? Well, I had a beach house in Sorrento that was beautiful with a swimming pool. I had nice cars. I had investment properties. I had... Um, so all those things that society deemed to be the things we strive for. Well, correct. 
No, well, I, I seeded all the things I thought I needed to feel mm. enough, mm-hmm. you know. And this disease of alcoholism, you know, the disease of alcoholism, the alcoholic drinking is the final solution mm. to the thinking, as no doubt you'll hear many times. You know, there's alcoholic thinking, but when you put down the drink, you're still left with the thinking that got you to drinking. Mm. And so my thinking at the time was the only way I was ever going to be happy is if I had the biggest house, the best beach house, went on the best holidays, wore the most expensive watches, had the most expensive clothes and was seen at the most expensive restaurants. Mm. That is literally how I valued my inner – so how I thought my inner value should be measured. And and that's ultimately what leads to what we call a rock bottom or a crash because you can't sustain that lifestyle forever. And um, – they say a power greater than yourself will, will bring you to your knees. Well, that's exactly what happened. Um, almost overnight, I fell off a cliff. Um, my business sort of collapsed. My marriage fell apart. And, um, you know, I hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look back now and think, well, yeah, rock bottom was pretty tough. And um, I don't wish it upon everybody. But it's also a gift. And I try and explain to younger people now who I help who are at rock bottom that Rock bottom really should be a place that's somewhat celebrated because as a former builder developer, I mean, I can tell you that I've paid engineers hundreds of thousands of dollars to locate rock bottom in soil because that's where we start the build from, rock bottom, because it's the most stable part of construction. Your buildings have to be founded in in soil that is at rock bottom Mm. so the buildings won't move. So in theory, going back to rock bottom is probably – the datum that we need to to start again. It's the circuit breaker that's required in your life to start a new life away from the disease of alcoholism. And that's where I found myself. The other thing I'll tell you about rock bottom is rock bottom will strip you of everything you don't need. The things you thought you need, you'll be stripped bare. So when I say stripped bare, I mean you'll be stripped of people, places and things. And you'll be left with what you need to to survive. And what you need to survive, you'd be very surprised. You don't need a lot. Um, an example of this, you know, I used to have, you know, and again, I'm, I, I say this, this whole interview humbly and I, I try not, I don't want to, people to think that, you know, it could come from an arrogant standpoint, but I used to have a lot more friends than what I do now. And I used to sort of look at that and say, well, I've got a whole lot of friends. I must be popular. I'm a great person. But interestingly enough, the people that I had and the friends I had were toxic people um, and I thought I needed those people in my life. So what happens when you hit rock bottom is those sort of friendships fall away because people who don't hang around when you're at rock bottom aren't meant to be your friends. The people that hang around and stay forever, they're your true friends. So what happens when you have a 1,000 friends reduced to 10 people? Those 10 people now get all of your time. Mm-hmm. And you cultivate those friendships into incredible friendships. And the people who might listen to this who are my friends, they know they are, who I speak to regularly, mm. I'm blessed because they know what I'm really like. They stood around. They stuck around. They're there. And I can now build from that relationship at rock bottom with them into something that's beautiful and amazing. All the other friendships are fake. Mm. How many people did you go out and get pissed with? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Time and time again. and. I wouldn't have spoken to any of them for years now. Yeah, exactly right. 
My gosh, there's so much in that. I think what you're touching on there is really some of the gifts that we receive in sobriety. Mm. And so for how long was it fun? I think alcohol for me was fun all the way through. Um, I think um, the problem with alcohol was it just gripped me. And when I say gripped, I was trying to think of a really good explanation to describe. I just remember leaving my office Friday lunchtime, always went out for lunch, and, um, and then returning to my office on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And it was all a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what alcohol did to me. I, 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 I could remember little vignettes, little snippets of the weekend, but not really much of the weekend. And it started to worry me. I started to think I had a memory loss disorder or something, but the problem was I was just drunk. Um, and then I remembered, you know, towards the end of my drinking days, um, you know, and you hear about it again on your other people talk about it, um, just the inability to drive past a bottle shop on a Thursday night, you know, saying I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a bottle of wine tonight. I'm going to go home, watch the footy show, do whatever I need to do. Mm. And, um, and the inability to make that choice, I just turned into the bottle shop. It's almost like I remember the, exactly the same experience driving down Ormond Road, just up around the corner here, and it would almost be like a physical force pulling me in. Totally. Like my mind, literally the whole way home from St Kilda Road, it's a 15-minute drive, it's not far, I'm not going to drink, 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 oh my God, there's a bottle in my hand. Mm. Like it's so hard to describe to somebody who doesn't have this disease mm. just how powerful it becomes. Mm. Definitely. But you see, the thing is, like, yes, I became alcoholic when I was around alcohol, but I was alcoholic when I was when I was 10. I was alcoholic when I used to go to the, the milk bar, steal money off my mum, right, and buy um, one-cent lollies. I don't know if you remember them. Or, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one-cent. And I'd eat the entire bag until I was sick mm. because the minute the sugar got into my body, I wanted more of it and I wanted more of it. Mm. You know, I mean, that's alcoholic. For me, that's alcoholic. I was alcoholic when I stood up in um, at, at primary school and did show and tell, and I used to come up with the most outrageous stories mm-hmm. that were totally farcical, never happened. But I got so many laughs out of the kids and the school teacher mm-hmm. that I got validation. You know, uh, mm-hmm. for me, that's alcoholic as well. You know, and, and I mean, I'm alcoholic because, you know, how many scoops of laundry detergent do you use? <laughs> Seriously. I probably overdo it too, yeah, but you're yeah. talking to another alcoholic. I know, that's my point. That should be the one question they should ask alcoholics. Not how much do you drink, how many scoops of detergent do you use? It says use one. There's, per- there's a person in a, in a scientific lab jacket, right, and there's graphs around them with all these enzymes and stuff and saying that one scoop will do all your laundry. I literally go, no, no, no. My washing needs 20 scoops. So I tip the whole thing in. You know, how many scoops of dog food do you give your dog? Like it says give the dog one scoop. I give it four. For some reason, I cannot help myself. More is more, right? Well, I can't, you know, it, but it's the same. It's the same mentality. Um, and and that, that, that thinking, that alcoholic thinking for me, I had my whole childhood. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying that if you have this thinking that you're an alcoholic, I'm just saying a lot of alcoholics out there would identify with this with this thinking, you know, and the dishonesty is, you know, I, I did steal money off my mum, 
you know, mm. when I was younger. I stole dollar two dollars here, blah blah blah. I, my twin sister never did. Mm. Um, you know, oh god, this is pretty bad. I was an altar boy, um, and I flogged money out of the um, out of the collection plate. You know, and uh, that was to buy lollies. Seriously. Um, so I, I I identify with alcoholic thinking long before I picked up a drink. Magic moment number four is from Chantal. She shares with us her ideas around alcoholism being a personality disorder and what it meant for her to completely surrender. And was that when you started to lean into alcohol as a crux? Good question. I think I always binge drank. So I would always vomit in my 20s. I had a year in London and, you know, we would go out three nights a week. I would always vomit. Um, I had so much fun in my 20s though. However, it was so bad that I remember coming back from London and having gastritis and stuff. Like I actually destroyed my stomach lining from alcohol abuse and vomiting. Again, no indicator that I was an alcoholic. Oh my God, I did that as well in 2009. I went traveling for a year in Europe, threw up every day for a year. No thought that I might be an alcoholic. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so going back to the family environment. So what was different about it? What I've since learned now that I'm in the rooms and I understand that alcoholism is a personality disorder where we have certain characteristics that we all have and I've been blessed to get sober in Dubai. So Dubai has like 250 different nationalities. So I was getting sober with Muslims, with like Indian labourers, people that I would have nothing in common with and we think exactly the same because of our addiction and that really blew my mind. So because I was raised by alcoholics, I had a massive sense of entitlement. We were always better than everyone. We had to be perfect. We were taught you have to make your guests feel special, you know, when you have people over, you know, your needs don't matter, everyone else's needs matter. So as a result, my brothers and I were really great socially, very socially astute, very um, great hosts, extremely popular socially, all that kind of stuff, very generous. Um, but yeah, it was that sense of entitlement. Like for instance, my mum would say to me, if you don't want to go to school, you don't have to go to school. So then normally you'd rebel, but I then became uber responsible because mm. she would, you know, give me an excuse to cop out quite often. Mm. So that entitlement, I think would be the main thing from the the mental illness of people around me saying you're better than everyone, you're so special, all that good stuff. Oh, another thing my dad always taught me was never give up, persistence. Mm. Never give up, you know, if, you, if you're optimistic, just keep going, tomorrow's a new day, which is most would say that's a great attribute to instill in a child, but those that are sober know that that's the worst thing, that the difference between those who make it and those that relapse is often that self-will where they don't believe they have to lean on others in the room, they don't ask for help and they think that just as they've achieved in their career or lost weight before, they can apply the same willpower to sobriety and it doesn't work like that because of our ego needs to be smashed and we need to um, reconcile that there's something bigger than us out there that is controlling and is the architect of our, our outcome and our fate and that's step three, which is the surrender. And so that I'd, I've had to deprogram Mm. That, that belief that I've had all my life that if you set your mind to it, you can achieve anything in order to retain my sobriety, which has been really challenging. Mm. So to clarify for the listeners, when you talk about step three, you're talking about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous? Correct. Yes. Yep. Excellent. And that step three is, you know, handing our will and our lives over to a higher power. Correct. So 
a lot of the problem with alcoholics is we're very egotistical and a lot of us are very intelligent and sensitive people and highly accomplished and very creative. And so we believe we can do anything. We have this invincibility complex and the only way for us to get sober is for our ego to be smashed by hopefully a really no BS sponsor, which I had. Um, And I'll just quickly segue into this. So back to the polo story. Mm -hmm. So when I did my step one, which is where you have to admit that your life's – I'm sorry, that – what is it? Your powers over alcohol and your life has become unmanageable. (laughs) So it took me two months to choose a sponsor because I didn't trust women when I came into the rooms because of my insecure attachment with my mum. Anyway, finally choose this sponsor because she had 10 years up. And then she said to me, so when you were all dressed up for the polo that day, you probably thought you were king shit, you know, like, you know, design a dress, looking great, going out all classy. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And she's like, I bet you just want to have a nice day in the sun with friends, enjoy some Verve Clicquot, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, 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 totally. And she goes, and where did you end the night? And I'm like, excuse excuse me? She goes, where did you end the night, Chantal? And I'm like, I don't follow. And she said, in the gutter. You ended the night in the gutter. So you are no better than anyone else. You are just as bad as the alcoholic under the bridge with the brown paper bag because you had the intent for one thing and it was out of your control and you couldn't manage it and you ended up in the gutter. So you are no better than anyone else. And I was like smacked. I was mortified. And I guess a lot of sponsees would then dump the sponsor and leave AA. But in hindsight, it was the absolute best thing Ever because I realise now, because I was really overloved, overindulged, given a lot of money, given a lot of leave passes, shirked a lot of responsibility by my family of origin, AA is the first – and also I always charmed my bosses. I was like top performer so I could dictate my rules in the workplace as long as I was would get the results. I would just be a law unto myself and be very egotistic. Um, and so AA is the first time ever – I've been held accountable in my life and I've been humbled and I'm so grateful for that because I was a nightmare. I was like a megalomaniac like Donald Trump before I came into these rooms as a line manager. Mm. I was crazy and I had no awareness of that. I was just this, literally a hurricane. Next up we have Patrick who vividly describes the harrowing experience of alcohol withdrawal. And what did your drinking look like right before you went in? What were, you know, the year leading up, what was? Um, It was every day. um, It got to the point of drinking every day, drinking in the morning um, to offset a lot of the physical discomfort uh, that I was feeling, particularly when I first woke up. Was that anxiety? It was anxiety. It was um, shake, the shakes. Mm. I had the shakes big time. you know, there was a constant feeling of sort of nausea in the stomach. That uh, real withdrawal. Yeah, the withdrawal stuff that um, is, you know, it. it I, I understand very clearly why um, why relapse can happen and why people drink through the withdrawal phase because it's just excruciating and, and I just needed it to – I needed the physical stuff just to stop and I needed my head to just, just be dulled for a bit and not um, – it would just be spinning out of control, thoughts everywhere, thoughts every second. And Can you try and describe for our listeners exactly what it's like to be like that? For somebody who doesn't understand what it's like to withdraw from alcohol or to have a dependency, what does it look like? So um, a, a really simple analogy that um, I read at a, an article not long ago by um, 
was it, by a medical student at Harvard, and they just sort of talked about the withdrawal period and the, the timeline of withdrawal. And basically it ends up being like a car going down a hill at 100 miles an hour without any brakes. And so, and that's what the mind is like. It's just racing and racing and racing. And, um, and that's the mental side of things. So lots of paranoia, anxiety, um, hearing things, um, you know, hearing voices. Um, your sleep is just so compromised. Um, you know, I would sweat through the, the sheets. I couldn't get more than sort of 20, 30 minutes of sleep at a time. Uh, I'd wake up and I'd see things or I'd hear things. Um, I remember when I was at work once and going through a really bad withdrawal and I was at my desk and as clear as anything, I thought I heard someone say, hey, Pat, and I literally got up and was walking across the office and there was no one in the office. And wow. it, it was just like, oh, my God, like it's, it can get to that. I mean, that's probably the end of – that's the, the extreme, but um, it's basically the body just freaking out. Mm. <laughs> like where is, the, where is the thing that I've been so accustomed to? Um, you know, your, your brain sort of gets used to just kind of sitting in the – sort of sedative effect of alcohol the fog the fog and then the alcohol's gone and it's like i said it's like that car without any brakes just hurtling down the hill um and that's why so many of us we just we need to pick up a drink at that point because it's the only thing that the the body at that point will react not positively to but it will react to in a way that will calm things down and i guess that's why they talk about alcohol being the solution isn't it when we talk about the disease of alcoholism, you know, we live with the disease of alcoholism, but the actual drinking is the solution part. That's where it eases off. That's right. And one of the things that we learn um, when we get into the rooms of AA was that, um, you know, we're here for our drinking, uh, you know, and, and in the in the first instance, but we stay to correct, not correct, but change the way that we think and the way that we feel and react to certain things because, um the issue for me was certainly the drink, but it was it was the symptom of much bigger problems that I had with myself and with how I saw myself in the world. Mm. Our next magic moment is from Nat. Here she describes how she needed to go through multiple rock-bottom moments until she finally came to a point where she was physically forced to slow down. It was in this quiet space that she was able to finally face her fears and through that process, step into freedom. Nat, when I talk to people that come and sit with me about their recovery from addiction, we often talk about there being a rock bottom moment, which is sort of the moment that, you know, it was the, it's the dark moment moment but it's also the moment where things shift and you know recovery stems from it's like the lotus you know growing in the mud yes so did you have a rock bottom moment in your recovery from this eating disorder and this perfectionism I feel like I've had a few (laughs) (laughs) it definitely hasn't been a linear experience um I think the first one was I got to a point with my business where they were doing – my athletes were doing so well and I loved them so much and I'd created this beautiful family and this community, but it was still a business. 
And just for a minute, let's go back. What was the business just so our listeners can understand? Oh, so I ran a cheerleading and dance studio. Got it. So I also opened in 2012 a cheerleading and dance studio mm. while doing my master's and competing. Mm. <laughs> doing the rest of mm-hmm. it. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can do all the things mm. apparently, which I can't do all the things apparently absolutely cannot um but that was also validating my capabilities and my enoughness of being able to do but um I did run that for six years Mm -hmm. I had that studio um and it was a beautiful beautiful studio I had wonderful staff and I had incredible athletes and it was such a family and a home and I cared so much about them um, and that was something that did make me feel something. I didn't have the highs of all the excitement and stuff, even though I knew I shouldn't, but the actual heart of it was my heart that went into that. And in that, and with my people pleasing, it was always to please my athletes and to please the parents and to please everyone, which meant it wasn't a very good business model to use mm. for a business. So I financially didn't cope and didn't survive because, you know, people couldn't pay their fees and I'd be like, that's okay. Next time. Next time. <laughs> you just come and do it when, when you can, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and then they'd go on a family holiday and you're like, wait a second. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> Left scratching your head. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it got to a point where it was too much and I didn't have the support and the help that I needed from some people to be able to keep it going and to keep my sanity. And I got to a point where I just broke and I had in the storeroom, I had um, a beautiful friend of mine. Um, We were so, 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 so close. I just love her to death. But um, we had in the back room pillow pets and we used to throw them <laughs> um when you broke down and there were quite a few times that I would just break down in the storeroom just a mess and then I'd go out and teach and be like completely fine and be like all right let's go it's time for glasses you know mm. let's go um it's really that epitome of what being behind a smile isn't it oh, having to switch on and yeah literally had a storeroom that I would go and throw pillow pets and scream and cry and then walk out and be like all right everyone welcome ready to class let's mm. go let's you know pumped up music all the rest of it um and I just got to a point where I just sat on the floor and I was again so malnourished and <laughs> just um depleted and didn't have the resources or the capacity to hold myself together and I just started crying and crying again and I was like I'm back here I'm back like I was off the antidepressants but then and I was like I'm back here again Mm. I thought I I thought I was stronger than this and I'm like and I I got to a point where I was like I just can't anymore I can't and it got to the end of that year and it got to Christmas and normally I would just keep classes going the whole way through except like public holidays mm-hmm. um but I closed the studio for the first time like I had I closed for a week <laughs> um and in that one week I was like I need to go and do I need to do something for myself I need to go and do something for myself I need to go and dance because I wasn't doing anything anymore by that stage I was just teaching yeah, and just then working, working. Mm. so 
I was working like 80 hours a week. Um, cause I wasn't studying anymore, so I had to pick up my workload. <laughs> um, but I was like, I need to do something for myself. So I went, I need to do a dance class. And then it was the Christmas holidays, so nothing was open. So I ended up going to a bar class. Mm. And then I found that. And I was like, oh, my God, I need this. So I started doing that more and more. But I used it as a punishment. Mm. It was just to feel something. So if I could make myself so sore and just really push really hard and be sore the next day and then go the next day on top of the soreness and build on that, I was Mm. feeling something. Um, And then there was a session that it was a Saturday and I went on the Saturday and afterwards there was a yoga class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could get a bit of a stretch. (laughs) I'd love to have a bit of a stretch. So I went and did this yoga class and the teacher, who is just one of my dearest friends still, um, she was like, we're going to do some yin, which if you're not familiar with yin, it's um, long holds, quite restorative. You're in your own space for quite a long time. There's a lot of space to be silent and to go inward and it's – So I went to this class and I stopped for the first time in, I don't know, 10 years. I just stopped and it was so uncomfortable. Mm. It was just so uncomfortable to, one, be still in my body, to try and relax my body because that didn't feel safe, but then to have so much stillness and I was like my mind just didn't stop and there were so many thoughts and I was – it was – so uncomfortable but at the end of it I was like I need that Mm. I just need that what do you mean by it didn't feel safe to stop and be in your own body so the exercise the working the even the eating stuff they were always of not being in my body mm. because being in my body was felt like I had to acknowledge what was actually there. So I'd have to acknowledge the not good enough, mm. the not capable, the, um, the needing to – like all the, all the limiting beliefs, all those little things, I could have to actually sit in those and feel them. And the grief. And feel the grief and feel the anger because, I've, like, I've had so many injuries. Mm. I had this conversation with my therapist as well was just – they're like, what are you angry at? I'm, like, I'm not an angry person. They're like, everyone's an angry person. Like, look, look, look at your life. Like mm. – you go through your time, my timeline, and they're like, you, you must be angry. Like, look at what's happened from 14 in your 20s as well and all these things. They're like, you must be angry. And I was like, oh, no, not really. Mm. And they're like, oh, really? Because you've been injured a lot. Who do you reckon you're taking it out on? Oh, wow. They're like, you've just had a shoulder reconstruction. Why did you need to have a shoulder reconstruction? That you – that you hurt your shoulder in twenty eight in two thousand and eight, and you had it in twenty twenty two twenty twenty one. Sorry, mm. like you're punishing yourself. You're taking your anger out on yourself because you're a people pleaser, and you don't want to take it out on anyone else because you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, even if they've done the wrong thing. Mm. 
But um, so the those things stop me from actually having to go in and acknowledge what has actually happened in my life. So to actually acknowledge that my dad committed suicide and that it made me feel inadequate, mm. not enough, not capable. It made me – I. it made to – Going to my body meant I had to acknowledge the fact that I had been sexually abused by a uni lecturer and by a cheerleading international coach mm. and to actually be like, those things happened. Mm. But I never wanted to acknowledge it because that made it real. Yeah. And that made it true. And then it meant that also... Part of that going and going, that made it true, being in my body, it's like, I have to feel this, the grief, the anger, the rage, all these things that are negative qualities of a human and not perfect. Mm. So I have to feel those things. And then, but then there's also the guilt of not speaking up, of not having a voice, of not saying that these things happened and then knowing that things happen to other people. It's the fact of not being there for other people when they needed me. It's it's that I went into such shutdown that I have to now acknowledge all these other thought patterns and things. So being my body felt so unsafe yeah, because it was hard. Mm. And it also meant it goes, these things can happen. And if I acknowledge them, they're real, which means they can happen again. Yeah. It's almost like that running from fear and it sounds like, in that moment that you were in that yin class and everything stopping and everything becoming still was that first moment you let yourself almost be willing to face it for the first time. Yeah, 100%. So it was this moment of going, oh, I need I need to actually make a change. It's time to look at this stuff. It's time to look at this stuff. Like you've got the ability to do it now. Mm. And, you, I, I don't, and you're here because you don't want to do what you're doing. Mm. You can't do it anymore. And that's when I decided to close. So I ran the studio for one more year and then I closed the doors, which was so hard to do. Yeah, I and imagine. the guilt that I felt of letting other people down and having to tell my staff. And I loved everyone so much and the having to have the conversation with the parents and the athletes and all the tears and all the rest of it. Like that was so painful. Like 2018 was such a hard year for me. I reckon that was... The one of the three, the top three hardest years. Mm. But I needed to make that change because I needed to find out who I was mm. because I didn't know who I was because everything I'd done was built on trying to prove myself to other people, mm. to what they wanted me to be and what they expected me to be. But not even that, it was what I expected that they expected of me. For sure. Because if I actually have a real conversation with them and sit down and like, oh, I just want to... I thought that's what you wanted or I wanted you to be happy. Like I set my own expectations of what their expectations were, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Oh, makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> I identify so much. Our final magic moment is from Toby. In this conversation, Toby shares his first-hand account of living with a family member who was struggling with addiction and the impact that had on the extended family. He also shares some tips for how you might approach somebody if they're struggling with addiction. 
I'd love to go back and just ask you a couple more questions about the those years that your family were experiencing Sam in active addiction. Yep. Can you explain what it was like for your parents in terms of whether they were to keep the person inactive in the home mm. so that they mm. could try to perhaps keep an eye or manage the situation versus I imagine people would get to a breaking point where they would say you can't be in the house anymore because you're, you're impacting everyone around you. Well, this is going back. You're absolutely – it's a great question. My parents initially – my parents are both doctors and initially – without understanding more about addiction, they didn't know what to do. And they didn't know what was going on for Sam on a personal level. So the want was to try and support him as best they could, uh, keep him in the home, hoping that things would take a turn and, and move into the right direction and eventually he'll grow out of it. Uh, over time, and I think it was when he started stealing and pawning various items, and you know, we'd come home and we'd find holes in the walls or you know, damage to the property they began to understand that this wasn't going to change overnight. Something else had to happen. And I remember um, talking with my parents and I was the advocate for let's just leave him, let's get rid of him because he's no good. Which, being a parent now, is tremendously difficult. I, I couldn't, even now I couldn't understand what they were going through in order to come up with those decisions that they had to go through. But eventually Sam was moved out and I know for a period he spent some time on the street living in Melbourne. Um, I know he lived in various share houses. Um, but it would have been, but my parents always kept an eye on him as best they could from afar. So, and I remember one night they found him in a backpackers in St Kilda going into cardiac arrest when he'd overdosed on heroin one night. Mm. Uh, and they took him down to the Alfred uh, for him to be shocked back. But they, there was a mutual respect there. Even though Sam was in, in you know, the depths of addiction. There was still a respect there. He could yell and scream at them and, and call them names and do all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, they they just wanted to care for him and, and, and keep him safe as best they can. But but they turfed him out and they brought him back. They turfed him out. They brought him back. I left. I came back. Um, you know, my sister was doing, uh, was doing year 12. She left to do year 12 in another house so that she could concentrate on her studies. Wow. It was a really difficult process. But ultimately... Um, by doing that and having to go out and learn more about addiction and try and get support from the from various different areas, they sort of came together in a much more solid understanding with a united approach to which ultimately led Sam to the hopefully to the right um, outcomes that he needed to to look at himself and change himself. Mm. So, can you tell me how you felt towards Sam during that time? I can because I remember it very well. I had a real visceral, is the word I use, hatred of him. I didn't care if he lived or died. I didn't care whether he was you know, on the street or living out of a sewer. I just did not care. I removed all emotional attachment I had towards him and just saw him as a being as opposed to a person. Um and that's really because you know we we had a good upbringing, the two of us. We went to a good school. We had great parents. You know, we we didn't have any significant life events that affected us. Um, but you know, we were instilled when we were young that you had to work in order to get what you wanted. So you know, there was no uh, without effort, there was no reward. Uh, and I, I talk about being the oldest because I had to go out there and I had to demonstrate effort. I had to do the work to get the to get anything that I was after. Whereas Sam. 
my brother, I thought, uh, had things somewhat handed to him on a platter. So I never thought that he got he got the, that work ethic. And when addiction started to rear its ugly head, I always thought that he could just do something about it. It was his choice. Why is he using heroin? Mm-hmm. Stop using heroin. It's that easy. Um, he's just soft. And and it was sort of that, those feelings that I really felt were um, – they just grew and grew and grew where I just absolutely hated him, hated his guts. Uh, and the change really happened when he started attending these peer support groups, 12-step um, groups, because he was then having to go off to these meetings when it wasn't mutually convenient. It wasn't a great time. He'd have to go during dinner time or he'd have to miss out on going to the movies or, or hanging out with his friends because he needed to go to these support groups. And I saw that as him putting in the effort. And that's when I started to change my way of thinking because I thought, actually, he's taking this really seriously. There's got to be something here. There's more going on than I realise. Um, but, yeah, those, those dark days were, were really dark. And when I talk to family members and I hear the hate, mm-hmm. and I use the word hate because those that have been in those situations, they'll understand what I say when I say this. It's just you don't understand. You cannot uh, compartmentalise how someone's behaviour, how they can act like that and still call themselves a member of the family. So when they talk, when they talk to me and I hear the hate or, or the, the loathing in their voice, I sympathise with it but I do let them know that it can change. Mm. It reminds me, when I think you've described perfectly this concept that was explained to me is that if I don't put my recovery first, I lose everything else. And so that does mean for me I'm in 12-step showing up to meetings when it's not necessarily a convenient time. There's a thing called a home group in AA and that is, you know, that's your one meeting a week that you commit to and, you know, it was said to me once that the only reason you miss your home group is if you're at a funeral and you're in the coffin. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's good to really know that he was... Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's, you know, I often think about it, it's like going to the gym, you know, it's and going to the gym, if you go once or twice, you're not going to see any results. It's all about consistency. It's all about being there and fronting up, doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter whether it's raining or sunny or snowing outside. It's having that consistency and that routine behavior to prove that you're serious about what you're doing. Well, at least it proved, you know, Sam proved it to me. Um, for the individual, it's slightly different. It's about getting the support. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's really... It, those types of behaviours are really, really important. Mm. If somebody has who's listening today has a loved one who is in active addiction or perhaps is even just moving into that area, so perhaps they're a heavy drinker but it looks like there could be some alcoholism at play, what would you suggest as a way of trying to support that person? Listen, it is situationally dependent. It all depends on what's going for the indiv- inter- going on for the individual. But being open and honest and having that upfront conversation as a first step is always my uh, go-to in terms of those types of situations. If you're worried about somebody, say something. Uh, if you have a loved one that you're worried is um, potentially using too much or partying too much or, or um, you're starting to see elements of their life that they're not taking as seriously as they once did, have that conversation because it's the outcome of that conversation that leads to the next step. If they're, if you sort of highlighted something and they go, actually, yeah, you're right, I'm going to do something about it, crisis averted. Mm-hmm. If they don't, um, the next step is to then potentially go and talk to someone in more of a, cap- a professional capacity or somebody that's been in that type of situation and start garnering that advice mm-hmm. to put together a bit of a support plan. Because 
what people don't understand is that often when we talk about addiction, we're focused on the addict. What we don't focus on are the people around the addict and that support structure that the addict has. And the impact that that addict's behaviour has had on that support structure often goes unnoticed, it goes untreated, and ultimately leads to a disintegration of relationships, family units and so on. So it's very important if the addict's going to get well, the family unit or the support structure's got to get well with them. Otherwise, when we get to the other side and people are, you have the addict going off in one direction, not everybody will go with them. And that's a wrap, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane as we listen back to this season's magic moments. I'm signing off for now with the biggest thank you to each and every one of you who has listened and supported the show throughout the year. My heart is full of gratitude and I simply cannot thank you enough. We say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you all for playing your part by supporting this podcast. I'll be back next week to kick off season two. Until then... Have a safe and happy new year, everyone. Bye for now.